Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 3, looking at verses 14 through 19 this morning, Choices and Consequences. It's a lesson which is as old as Adam, but one which each successive generation has to learn. The lesson of choices and consequences. There we go. Last time we were together, we explored the day that man died. Though Satan had insisted that Adam and Eve would not die when they partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this was most certainly not the case. Satan had most definitely lied to them. Yes, their bodies continued to function. They did not uh, cease to live in the the material of the physical sense on that day, but we don't impose our definitions and our sensibilities of a word upon the Bible in order to understand what the Bible is saying. We allow the Bible to define itself. We allow the Bible to comment upon itself. And the Bible here defines death, not exclusively as when the body ceases to function, or more specifically, as we call it, when the spirit is separated from the body. That idea of separation is fundamental to the concept of death, but rather a different idea of separation, a fundamental separation, not just of the body from the spirit, but as we see death here, there is a separation of man's spirit from God's spirit, from the life that is in God, so that as man was separated from God, he was separated from the one, Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was separated from the one, called in John 1 the word, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So as they were separated from the life of God, as they were separated from uh, fellowship with God, they died. They ceased to have life in them spiritually. Their spirit was separated from God's spirit. So that when Adam and Eve clothed themselves and hid themselves in the garden from the presence of the Lord, we see the evidence of their death. We see that at the moment that they partook, they had an enlightening of sorts, but it was not a gain, it was a loss. What they gained in return for their efforts was fear, shame, and guilt. And they experienced this shame, this uh, shame that caused them to cover their nakedness, this fear that caused them to hide from their God for the first time. And thus we know that they died. And so we talked about that last time, the natural consequences of Adam and Eve's choices, as well as as God uh, asked each one of them in turn, and they spoke to the Lord about their experience here. But we have yet to consider the divine consequences. We saw the natural consequences, the things that naturally happen within God's design for this world when a person steps outside of God's way, outside of God's design, and steps into rebellion. And we can see that as well in our own world. We have elements of divine consequence and we have elements of natural consequence. That when you sin, there are natural consequences for that sin. There's natural shame. There's natural guilt. There are the things that God has designed into this world. Maybe that sin brings with it physical consequences upon you. That when you um, step into... uh, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, lack of stewardship over your money. There are going to be natural consequences as it relates to what that means for for the manner in which you live, for uh, the opportunities that you have to to provide for the ones that you love. Natural consequences that come from 
doing things outside of God's way and outside of God's design. But then we also see divine consequences. God layering on top of natural design consequences, things that he chooses uh, and, and for any number of reasons. And today we see the divine consequences that God chose for the serpent, for Adam, and for Eve. Adam and Eve are now alienated from the life of God. The question now is, what would this mean for their futures? And that is what we're going to consider today. The consequences of these choices, which Adam and Eve made, not just upon themselves, but upon the whole of the human race, and also learn broader lessons about choices and consequences themselves. So we left off last time with the Lord confronting Adam regarding his choice here. and, And why it is he hid himself from the Lord. Adam explains he hid himself because he was afraid. Because he knew that he was naked. This obviously brings about a realization of what they had done, though the Lord knew it already. Immediately God asks, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? Adam states that the woman gave to him the fruit. The woman that God had given to him gave to Adam the fruit, and he did eat. God then questions the woman, what have you done? She says, the serpent beguiled me, and I ate. And this is where we pick up our context in verse 14, where the Bible says this, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. So God does not question the serpent about his actions or his motives as he did to Adam and to Eve. Rather, God immediately levies a consequence. And there's a couple of reasons why we might think of this. And those reasons are reflected a little bit even in how the text is constructed. Uh, This consequence that falls upon the serpent uh, falls upon him in a twofold fashion. The first consequence, which we see here in verse 14, falls upon the... Um, the body of the serpent itself, and subsequently all serpents that would exist hereafter. The second consequence, we'll see, falls upon that which undergirds what the serpent said and did, Satan himself, who used the serpent. And this is probably why uh, there was no questioning of the serpent. First, because as it relates to the body of the serpent, Uh, that body was used by Satan, and of course the serpent itself uh, was simply a vessel. And then as it relates to Satan, there's no need to question why he did what he did. God knows full well why he did what he did. Satan has already been cast out of heaven. The rebellion has already taken place. God knows Satan's goals and intentions. God knows Satan wants for himself a kingdom. There's no question mark as to what Satan did here. So he doesn't have to question Satan on his motives. So he questioned man. He questioned woman. And then he talks to the serpent. Now, he begins by speaking to the serpent in a physical context. He tells the serpent that because he has done this thing, he is cursed above all cattle. Now, we spoke to this right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 as one of the reasons why it seems to make the most sense that Satan is not simply appearing in the form of a serpent here. It is not that the angelic being is taking on or shifting into the shape of a serpent in order to speak to Adam and Eve. Because if he were just 
just shifting into the shape of a serpent to speak to Adam and Eve, there would be no reason to curse the, ser- the, the physical serpent. Much to the contrary, we would presume that to some degree or another, the serpent allowed Satan to take over his body um, and, and, and was, was in, in some way consenting to this. And thus, to that, to that extent that he allowed Satan to take over his body, he is culpable or responsible um, for said allowance. We also um, said that um, this would also lend the fact that, that the, the serpent is, is cursed and cursed above all cattle. This also lends credence to the idea that the concept of the serpent speaking is not the idea that Satan is speaking and the Bible is calling him a serpent as if reflecting upon his character. So when we would talk to someone and say, that person is a real snake, we're not saying that that person, in fact, is a snake. We're saying that that person has, it has character of subtlety, uh, maybe slippery, whatever. Uh, those snakes aren't that, we know. But, um, but the idea being that he is of poor character, that he is deceitful, that he is tricky, that he is a liar, and we'd say that person's a real snake. And so some have presumed that maybe that's what's being said here, that when we're introduced to the serpent, it's just Satan who is talking to them in whatever form he has chosen to to reveal himself to them, but that he has the character of a serpent. Doesn't make sense then that God would curse the cattle. Same if uh, if Satan is shape-shifting here, as it were, and, and coming in the form of a snake. Does not make sense then that God would curse the actual beast that is the serpent. But God does curse the beast that is the serpent, lending credence to the idea that the serpent, in some way, shape, or form, allowed Satan to take over his vessel for this purpose. And uh, whatever that consent looked like, however that worked, we don't know. But in order to accomplish his deceitful purpose, it would seem as though Satan was able to take over the physical body of a physical serpent. And um, were this not the case, then God's curse of the serpent, said both in verse 1 and then in verse 14, uh, to be a subset of the creatures of the earth would not make much sense. So the serpent is cursed here. Now, we don't know what the serpent looked like at this point. We would presume that he did not crawl or slither on his belly. Whether that means he had legs or wings or whatever, we simply do not know. But the nature of this curse is that the serpent would, for the remainder of history, move upon its belly and eat the dust. And the Bible doesn't explain much about this. But in that the curse is reflected in comparison to the other beasts of the field... The idea is perhaps that the serpent thus holds an ignominious place among God's creatures. And this would kind of make sense as we think of the concept of humility, the concept of debasement. It is often reflected in the idea of lowering oneself or or, um, going to the ground. As a matter of fact, many times we even see the idea of a man lowering his face to the dust as a reflection of humility or of sorrow or of debasement of one shape or form uh, being on the ground. To that end, there's a, a dignity that comes with a man being on his feet. There's a dignity uh, in, in the, the concept of animals uh, walking. In fact, in many cases, a majesty to it. 
in the way that God has designed them to travel. And among the beasts, we see the serpent. And in Genesis chapter 3, a reflection of the fact that the serpent is meant to have an indignity in the manner of his travel, that he would crawl on his belly and that he would eat um, the, the, the dust. And of course, um, those of you that know um, how snakes operate uh, in order for snakes to navigate this world, uh, they use their tongue as their primary uh, sensing organ. And it is as they flick that tongue out and effectively taste the ground that they're able to uh, understand with, with their senses what is happening around them. So um, very correct as it relates to those things. Uh, even today, thus, we see the effects of the curse upon the serpent. Again, what it looked like beforehand, we do not know. But that is only a small sliver. It's, it's more like the, um, the physical manifestation of a much deeper metaphorical spiritual idea. And that spiritual idea we draw in verse 15. Uh, the Bible says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Notice the difference in kind between the first address and the second address. The first address spoke to the serpent of a physical thing, a physical per- per- curse upon his body, which we can look at serpents today and still see. But the second curse is far different in nature. We would say it's far more spiritual in nature. And this ought to cause us to perk our ears because serpents are the beasts of the field. They're not made in the image of God. They do not have spirits. This is one of the fundamental differences between animals and humans. And this leads us to think that God has transferred his address from the physical serpent, which he cursed, whose body was used by Satan to enact this deceit, to Satan himself. And this is not necessarily something that would be foreign or uncommon to Scripture. Recall when, when I was introducing you to Satan in Genesis, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, we talked about one of the uh, reflections of Satan in, I believe it was Ezekiel 28. And in, in Ezekiel 28, I'm not 100% sure on the reference there, but in Ezekiel 28, if you recall, I talked about one who is called in that text the king of Tyre. And I mentioned just briefly the fact that within Ezekiel 28, we see a curse that is upon or a prophecy against the prince of Tyre. And as the prophecy goes out against the prince of Tyre, everything about that prince sounds very worldly or earthly in nature. It talks about him being a good leader. It talks about him being a wealthy man. It talks about him being proud. It talks about him being uh, self-confident in his, in his uh, uh, fortifications, in his physical position, uh, in, in the, the opportunities that he has before him. And then there's a, a lamentation or a woe upon the king of Tyre. And what I explained is that when we get to the king of Tyre, things are a little bit different. When God describes this king of Tyre, it describes him as being in the garden of God. It describes him as having been perfect from where he was formed. And all of a sudden we see a very different character to this. So that while the, the reference is still to something which would in theory be physical, a prince versus a king, what we actually believe we're reading there is the prince of Tyre being as it were, the earthly king of Tyre, and then the king of Tyre being the spiritual being who enacted or empowered the physical king, the prince of Tyre, to do his work. Thus we see a transition from a curse upon the physical man who would be the prince of Tyre to a curse upon Satan who would be the king of Tyre. And we see a very similar idea here. 
that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, we see a curse upon the physical serpent whose physical body was used to enact this wicked deceit. And then in verse 15, there's a transition here which becomes very spiritual in character. And thus we would believe that we are seeing a transition from God cursing the physical serpent to God cursing Satan, who was the one who was empowering the serpent unto this end. And this leads us to think that this transfer has happened to Satan himself. Not a curse upon the vessel, but upon the actor. And if this is indeed the case, then this curse takes on a major significance. And this significance introduces us to the first theme in what the Bible will trace throughout its pages as a kingdom conflict. Over several messages now, I've spoken about the idea that Satan wanted to get to Adam because in order to challenge God as God, Satan needed a kingdom. So Satan offered to Adam the conditions of his kingdom as opposed to the conditions of God, God's kingdom. God had laid out his conditions, he was, and Adam was living in those conditions. He was in a place of virtue. He was in a place of peace. He was in a place of provision. He was in a place of meaningful labor with, with a singular prohibition that he may not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that he ate thereof, he would surely die. Those were the conditions of God's kingdom. And Satan laid out his conditions and said, I believe God is lying. You will not die, but God knows that the day that you eat thereof, you will be as God's, knowing good and evil. If you accept the conditions of my kingdom, Satan said to, to Adam, the conditions of my kingdom will be do as thou wilt. Do what feels good. If it feels good, do it. Uh, withhold nothing from yourself. If you want it, you can have it. And Adam accepted the conditions of Satan's kingdom. So he rebelled against God. And so now Satan has a kingdom. Indeed, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, he called, that, that passage calls Satan the God of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And so we see that Satan has power in this world. He is indeed the God of this world. And thus, mankind would now be born into Satan's kingdom by virtue of Adam's choice. We'll talk a lot more about this. We call this headship. And we'll talk more about this next week. That'll be the focus of our message next week. But we also see something else here. We see the promise of a seed. We see that God did not just yield his kingdom. We see that God has a plan. And we see God tell Satan, promise to Satan, the enaction of a plan that would see the end of his reign and the end of the kingdom that he had gained on that day. God said, you have gained a kingdom. Now I'm going to prophesy of its end. So God already had a plan to usher man back into his kingdom. And that plan would come through the seed of the woman, which would contend against the seed of the serpent. Now, once again, the serpent here in verse 15, transitioning to Satan, the seed of Satan. There would come the seed out of a woman, the same sex that had been beguiled by Satan into partaking of the fruit, would also be the sex through whom God would bring about his champion. God would send one to bruise, that word meaning to break, the head of the serpent. 
Do you see the spiritual context and the significance to this? This verse isn't saying that women would, uh, would persist with a natural predisposition to be afraid of snakes. The idea of the seed of the serpent is not that there would be a natural antipathy between women and snakes. Now, we may see that. That may be, in some senses, a, a metaphor which the Lord may have baked in, in some senses, uh, to this world as a way by which to reflect upon this truth. But that is not the truth being exhibited here. The truth being exhibited here is that the seed of, uh, the, that, that, that the woman would have a natural enmity against Satan. And the seed of the woman would have a natural enmity against the seed of Satan. And this verse is saying that God has a plan. In that plan, God acknowledges that Satan will have posterity, that men and women born into this world will be born into Satan's kingdom by nature. The men and women born in this world, including my new little one, just a few months old, is born into Satan's kingdom, born separated from God. But that there would come a seed, a child, born of a woman, and that this child would defeat Satan once and for all, would bruise or break his head, and that Satan would bruise or break his heel. Now, the idea of the heel, meaning that there would be damage done to the seed, but that the seed would do to Satan permanent damage. To this end, it's little wonder that Satan has always hated children. That child sacrifice has always been a hallmark of Satan and his philosophy. It's little wonder that those who commit themselves to the satanic pagan religious ideas, to the satanic philosophy, philosophies of this world, be it witchcraft and wizardry, be it humanism and its, its manifestations, be it any of the pagan religions in between. It's little wonder that those who have committed themselves to satanic pagan religions have always been compelled to kill children, to trade the lives of their children for the promises of the goods of this world, to sacrifice their children on the altar of the desire for these this pagan god, Satan behind that god, to bless them. From, Satan, uh, from Pharaoh having the sons of Israel killed in Egypt in order that he might maintain power over that people, to the tribes who sacrificed their children to Molech in the Old Testament, making their children pass through the fire, literally filleting their children alive in order to appease these false gods of which Satan is the true objective. To Herod, killing all the males who were born in the region of Judea after Jesus' birth in order that he might destroy the child. To the modern eugenics programs that we see, be it the Chinese one-child, now two-child policy that had been in place since the cultural revolution of communism in China, or the death cult that is abortion in this country and the hundreds of millions of children who have been sacrificed on the altar of convenience in this country, on, on, on the altar of will, 
on the altar of self. It is all the same spirit. It is all the same philosophy. It's something Satan has always wanted. Sacrificing children to the God of this world in order that he might give back in turn some measure of self-gratification or prosperity or wellness. But just like Satan's promises of the same to Eve in the Garden of Eden, so too with these child sacrifices. Satan's philosophy promises freedom and empowerment. Satan promised Eve freedom and empowerment. The child sacrifice in history, going from manifestation to manifestation, has promised through it freedom and empowerment. But what has it actually produced? What does it produce every time? What did Satan's promises to Eve in the garden produce? What has child sacrifice always produced? Nothing but fear and shame and regret. And while this idea of child sacrifice is somewhat a natural extension of the hedonism and self-worship that characterizes all of Satan's ideas, until Christ, it carried this unique determination among God's people that Satan wanted to see God's people be brought into this pagan idea. God wanted to see this pagan idea of child sacrifice flourish in the world first in order that the seed of the woman that bruises the, the, the head of the serpent would be destroyed before he could accomplish his purpose. And of course, if Satan could manage that, if Satan could manage the seed of the woman to be destroyed before he accomplished his purpose of destroying or bruising the head of the serpent, then Satan would have been successful. All of God's promises of undoing what happened on this day in Genesis chapter 3 were wrapped up in the promise of the seed of a woman who would come, who would destroy the head of Satan, who would destroy him. Of course, history now testifies that Satan was not successful in seeing this child destroyed. The promised seed did come into this world. The promised seed was born of a woman. The promised seed was born under the law. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. His heel was bruised in that he died on the cross. But in that death, we know, came abundant life. He regained for the human race all that was lost in Adam, fulfilling this promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is the first promise of Messiah, which is the first uh, uh, enunciation of the gospel in our Bibles. He fulfilled that promise, given, in fact, not to man. And this I find fascinating. The first promise of Messiah, the first promise of redemption was not made to man who was who had fallen on that day. Who was it made to? It was given to Satan. It was in Satan's curse that God promised Messiah's coming. It was in Satan's curse that God first gave the gospel. And what God promised to Satan on that day was that his days were numbered. And though he on that day thought that he had taken his first step unto victory and unto a kingdom, what Satan had in fact done on that day is made provision for the glory, justice, and mercy of God to be magnified in a way 
that no other course in history could have possibly achieved through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, as we continue in the text, then, we find that God turns his attention from the serpent, and thus Satan, by extension, to the woman, remaining otherwise in the same context of childbearing. He says to the woman in verse 16, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow, uh, in thy sorrow and thy conception, excuse me, in sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So the curse upon the woman is actually twofold. The first for her actions is that God would greatly multiply her sorrow and her conception. And God connected this sorrow to that of the pain and discomfort of childbearing. And in this we find in itself a fascinating theme. God has ordained that the redemption of the human race, that the thing which would destroy Satan, that would bruise the head of the serpent, that that would come through the seed of the woman, which means the woman has to bear children in order to see this seed brought about. Once that seed comes, of course, this redemption does not, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, so, so we see this idea, right, of, of the woman having to bear children in order that the, that the seed of the woman could be brought about. So the woman would endure this pain with the hope and the anticipation that it is quite possible that this child of whom she was having, a, uh, uh, having all of this pain and all of this discomfort might be the child through whom Satan would be destroyed. And so as the woman was deceived into partaking of the fruit, and then as Satan was thus cursed, and the promise that the seed of the woman would destroy him, then the curse upon the woman would be that he would multiply her pain and her sorrow in conception, in childbearing. But that that pain would come with the possibility that maybe through that pain, she might produce the one through whom Satan would be destroyed. Now you say, well, pastor, women don't get that anymore. They still have the pain, but Messiah's already come. Mary, Mary received that privilege. No woman in this room is going to have the privilege of bearing Messiah. Messiah is born. Messiah is lived, Messiah has died, Messiah has risen from the dead, and it's not going to happen again. And this is where that 1 Timothy 2 passage comes in. Remember Paul saying in 1 Timothy 2 that the woman will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and, 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 and joy in the Holy Ghost, something to that effect. Paul teaches that in the Christian church, in the same way that the redemption of the woman from every generation, from Eve to Mary, was that she might be the one to bear Messiah. That every woman had that possible hope as she went through the pain of the discomfort of labor and of, and of bearing children, that maybe, just maybe, through her would come the one who would destroy this, the, 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 the head of Satan. So too now, Paul says, every woman from Jesus onward has the opportunity to wonder if maybe, just maybe, the child that they have will grow to be something for God in the church, will grow to be a godly man, a godly woman who will serve the church in turn and who will touch this world for Christ. And that is the woman's redemption, 1 Timothy chapter 2 says. And so this privilege, the very essence of a woman's design and purpose and intent 
would be gained along the road of pain and sorrow, so that the sweetest of rewards would have to go through the deepest of trials. To this end, the philosophy of Satan has not only encouraged child sacrifice from generation to generation, but, but Satan, especially in our age and in this time, is becoming more successful at convincing women, both through the false threats such as climate change, or perhaps simply through narcissism and selfishness, to yield the privilege of bringing children into this world on the altar of self. But this was not the only curse levied upon women. What we have seen, then, is that throughout time, women who have been rightly related to an understanding of God's design for them have recognized that bearing children is a privilege and is a blessing and is an opportunity for her to make her mark upon the world as God has designed her to to make. But that's not the only curse that we see here. The second part of this verse says, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. This is the second part of the curse. So we know that the curse part here is not that the woman would be in subjection to the man. The curse is not that a woman would have to submit. And we know that because, once again, 1 Timothy 2 tells us that even the very fact that Adam was first created, then Eve, is a testament to the fact that the woman was created to be in subjection to the man. So we know that whether or not... Eve would have sinned, uh, would have been deceived, would have partaken of of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Whether or not she would have done that, we know that already she was in a position under the headship of her husband. God had instituted marriage. God had already positioned headship to be in place, and 1 Timothy 2 makes that clear. So the element of the curse is not that her husband would be above her, but rather than... The curse seems to be connected to this idea that her desire would be to her husband. And there's some debate about what this might mean. The word desire here is found only three times in the Old Testament. Here, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, it's spoken of in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, as it relates to Cain and his unacceptable sacrifice. And then it's used in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, to speak of the beloved's longing for another. The word here means desire or longing. And if we carry the possibilities of this idea into the text, it could go in a couple of different ways. The desire toward her husband here could perhaps mean that she will be beholden to or dependent upon men throughout her life. This is something which in many cultures we do see where women do not necessarily have the ability to take care of themselves. Certainly, throughout biblical culture and the ancient culture, this would have been true, um, that a woman was either, either needed to be connected to uh, her father, her brothers, her husband, to some male influence in order to be provided for uh, within the course of her life. And, and so that's a possibility of what it could mean, that her desire would be to her husband and he shall rule over her, that, um, that she would be beholden to or dependent upon men throughout her life, or that women would be dependent upon men throughout their lives. That one does not ring as true to me, because depending on various cultures and various times, this doesn't necessarily uh, work across the board. There are many women, even in the times that we see um, in, in the Bible and such, there would be certain women who would be more than capable and, and, and even in, in, in a, enabled to 
take care of themselves within their particular cultural position. So that doesn't necessarily ring particularly true as it would relate to this curse. The other possibility, which I think is significantly more likely, would be, and and many have said here, again, many have said that this means that the woman would have to submit and that it would be hard for her to submit to her husband. And that's a possibility as well. I I actually kind of discounted that one because I I don't really see it here either, the idea that it would be hard for her to submit to her husband um, naturally, although that's a possibility. The one that I think makes most the sense, however, is the idea that her desire would be toward her husband. The idea of her desire being toward her husband is that she would have a natural longing. This might be the wrong word to use, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, that she might, that there might be, in a sense, a sort of jealousy toward her husband. That she would have to battle with a, and, and this would perhaps be an extension of the idea that she, she struggles to submit, but she would have to battle with the natural measure of desire to be in the position of the man, to be the head of the home, to struggle with the idea that she is not designed and called by God to be the leader, the provider, the head. Rather, she is designed by God to be the supporter, the facilitator, and the nurturer. That she will need to yield her desire by faith and submit to the design of the will of God. And so it will not, and this will not be easy for her to do. And one of the reasons why I think that this makes sense, it's not something that we naturally see bubble up to the surface as a general rule. We might see it in the struggle of a woman to submit to her husband in one way, shape, or form. But I think we are particularly seeing it in the predations today of the transgender movement. The predations of the transgender movement today, uh, young girls are far more susceptible to it than young boys. The idea that a young girl transitions into being a boy is significantly more common than the other way around. And this is not necessarily surprising if we see this to be the case, that there are times in the lives of of young women, perhaps in particular, as they're understanding their place um, for a Christian before the Lord, for a non-Christian, as they're, they're trying to understand their place in the meantime, where there is a frustration with the patriarchy, right? With the fact that men are men and women are women, and that men have been given opportunities and have been designed to live out opportunities that women have not been designed or enabled to live out in this life. And so there is a, perhaps a natural antipathy there, a frustration there. I used the word before, and again, I don't know if it's the right word, but I think it does carry with it some measure of purpose, a jealousy there. And so I would think that to be a bit more consistent with the nature of this curse. Because in every time and circumstance and culture, regardless of prosperity or lack thereof, men are still men, women are still women, and there's no changing God's intent and design. It's also consistent not just with the predations of the transgender movement, but with the godless feminist movement as well, is it not? That as I've said before, The feminist movement has gone beyond just the idea of women being treated as equals and with respect, which, by the way, Western culture had figured out well before the feminist movement, and has gone to the idea that women need to be able to be men. 
so that women, instead of becoming first-rate women, are now attempting to become second-rate men. And so we see these things, and I believe that this is consistent with what the curse is reflecting here. That her desire shall be to her husband. And that, yes, would naturally make it hard to submit when her desire is to her husband, but I don't think that's the crux of the battle. I think the crux of the battle is the differences between man and woman, and submission is only a subset of that idea. So God has cursed the serpent, God has cursed Satan, who indwelled the serpent, God has cursed the woman, and now God curses the man. So we read in verses 17 through 19, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of the which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So in cursing the man, God curses the ground. This is where we see that not only is man cursed, but the entire environment around man is cursed for his sake. Now this will not be the final form of the earth as it relates to the cursings. We'll find in the days of Noah that God will instill into animals a fear of man, and with that fear of man will also be the opportunity or the gift of eating of meat. But notice at this point, um, God ordains that they would eat of the herb of the field. So at this point, God has not given to them the animals of the field to eat. God has only given to them the herbs of the field to eat. And he will toil, and he will be resisted by thorns and by thistles, and he will, he will work against thorns and thistles as he toils, and the ground will not plentifully and willingly give of itself to bear the fruit of of the herbs of the field. And so he will sweat and he will fight and then he will eat and he will do this for the rest of his life until he returns to the ground from whence he came. In other words, now man will die. We see no remarking of man having a physical death of his body physically breaking down before this point. Now, there's nothing intrinsically that says he was immortal to this point either. And we might might be able to have a lively debate about that in that there was a tree called the tree of life in the garden of which after they ate of the fruit, God said, I need to make sure they don't eat of that fruit. Now, Interestingly enough, God did not prohibit that tree from being eaten prior to this point, to the point where he cast them out of the garden. He only prohibits one, the fruit of one tree. So perhaps they were free to eat of the tree of life for a time. And maybe, and, and, and we'll talk more about what that might mean for the tree of life in a, a couple of weeks. So God attributes this curse to the fact that Adam yielded his headship that he hearkened unto his wife, that he submitted himself to his wife rather than taking headship over the home, rather than taking headship over his wife, rather than making this decision as he knew he ought to make, he submits to the headship of his wife and he eats of the tree. Now he would be cursed and the ground would be cursed. The ground would resist him, thorns and thistles would grow. Man would have to work hard. And for the next 1,000 years before God institutes the seasons, once again in the days of Noah, this would be constant. We'll see in the days of Noah that one of the prophecies of God toward Noah is that Noah would comfort mankind regarding the curse. And what is that about? 
The idea that Noah would be a, uh, in Noah's day, God would comfort man in regard to the curse would be this. That God instituted after the flood, after the great deluge, seasons. Which means there would be a growing season and then there would be a season called winter. And in winter, the thorns and the thistles would die. Thus giving man an opportunity to start over again and get back ahead of all of the weeds in the next year. Imagine prior to that time. Imagine prior to seasons. Imagine if everything was 75 degrees and a greenhouse temperatures and conditions all year round. Imagine how, how, much, how hard a man would have to work to keep the weeds down. All year, no rest. 365 days out of the year, those weeds are growing. You have to fight them all the time. No winter, to, no, no respite, no break. And so there is no comfort regarding the curse until after Noah's day. But in this point, man would be constantly fighting against thorns and thistles in order to keep the soil producing until he returned to the earth. And again, don't lose sight of that last bit. To this point, there had been no statement of human mortality. Only after the curse did God proclaim that man would return unto the dust from whence he came. God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And now man would die, and his body would return to that dust. And this is well summed up in Solomon's contemplations in Ecclesiastes 2, 22 and 23. This is a good summary of the curse. He said, For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. Of course, we know Job would say in Job chapter 5, verse 7, that man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. But you know... While we see those elements of grief, and while we regard Job saying that man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward, there was one man and one woman who were not ushered into that trouble by nature. And that's Adam and Eve. They were not born into trouble. They were born into peace and virtuous delight. Then Eve was deceived and Adam transgressed. They believed Satan's lie and they were ushered into that trouble. That would be the subsequent consequence of their rebellion. And so it is that man and woman are cursed. So it is the created order is cursed. Now there's another topic which we need to consider, as I said, next week, and that's headship. And we'll talk more about that as it relates to the curse upon creation. I won't get ahead of myself today. But for today, there are several thoughts of application which I think are valuable for us to draw out. Four thoughts as we conclude today as it relates to this passage and choices and consequences. First, never forget that earthly suffering began with man, not with God. One of the most common questions that a Christian will get in his efforts to engage men and women in regard to the gospel is, if God is this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God, then why do bad things happen to good people? Why do innocent people suffer? Why do children suffer? And sometimes this is used as a gotcha question. Sometimes it's used among those you know, the world's armchair philosophers who flatter themselves to presume that no Christian has ever actually thought of that question before. And that somehow they've really got us because they ask how bad things happen to good people. 
as if that has not been the, 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 the focus of thousands and thousands of pages and thousands and thousands of hours of debates and, 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 and contemplations, as if there's not a book of our Bible called Job that actually contemplates this question, as if there are not numerous New Testament ideas surrounding the concept of this question, as if Genesis in itself does not, does not contend with this question. And those people are just trying to, they're just trying to use a gotcha question. They think it's an unanswerable question, and they're going to be what they're going to be. And, and so we are tempted, because that question can be so disingenuous, to dismiss that question. But we dare not dismiss that question. And the reason why is because it's actually a good question, isn't it? It is a good question. Now, I might dismiss the armchair philosopher who, think, who has no interest in that question being answered and is only asking it to back me into a corner. But I do, should not dismiss the question in total because it's a good question. But here in Genesis chapter 3, we have the answer. God did not bring suffering and shame and pain and sorrow and fear into this world. Adam did. God isn't responsible for the mess that you and I are in. We are. Our sin. By sin came death. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. God didn't want this for us. God put us in a perfect environment. God gave us every provision to keep us well in virtue. God warned Adam and Eve against this. God told Adam and Eve exactly what would happen if they didn't listen to him. But God would not hinder man's free will to choose it. Now, we've talked about that already. We talked about the fact of why that is, because love is a choice, which means God needed to give man a choice. We talked about why it is that God did not just destroy us when we made the wrong choice, because he loves us too much. He doesn't want us to be destroyed, so instead he made provision for us to be redeemed through his son, Jesus Christ. We've talked about all of that already, but don't forget that, and don't, don't spurn that question. God has always wanted us to choose him in love, not to be bound to him like a slave. God gave man a choice. He warned him of the consequences of his rebellion. Man rebelled anyway, and now we toil. We sweat. We ache. Our loved ones die. We experience poverty. We have sorrow. We have fear. We feel shame. This is not God's doing. This is our doing. This is not a reason to reject God. This is a reason to flee back to God. This is a reason for us to go back to him and repent and humble ourselves before him. This is not a reason to get angry at him and reject him. God did not do this to us. We did this to us. But we also find in this passage something that's absolutely is God's doing. And that brings us to our second point. Redemption was God's plan from the beginning. It is not more than a few verses after Satan is successful at drawing Adam and Eve away from God that he announces his plan for the redemption of mankind. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Out of the pain of childbearing... From the woman who was deceived, out of that sorrow and that toil of the earth that would take care of the woman, that who would have the child, would come out of this sin-cursed world a redeemer, one that would bruise the head of Satan and claim victory over him. 
God created this world and he created it in perfection. He gave man an ideal environment he, and every provision necessary to be virtuously satisfied. Man chose himself above God. Man plunged this world into the sin. But God so loved the world that he was not content to simply relegate it to destruction and death. And so he took it upon himself in love to undo what man had done. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. For this week, though, it is enough for us to know that God has always loved us. He's always intended for mankind to live in a place of virtuous peace and joy. He's always intended man to be redeemed, not only from sin, but from a world of suffering. And that is the God that we serve. Third, contexts change, but Satan's philosophy does not. Whether we consider the Garden of Eden, or the time of the judges, or the kingdom, or the age of the church, Satan has always made the same false promises and led men into them with the same philosophy. That philosophy is self We talked a little bit in Sunday school today about Elijah after Mount Carmel when he got a little bit self-focused. And in that little bit self-focused idea, he lost sight of what God was doing. Self, self self-gratification, narcissism, hubris, hedonism. These are Satan's tools. When we turn our eyes off of the Lord and we place them on self, we find in self a fleshly gratification I'm thinking of me, I'm providing for me, I'm doing me, I'm loving me, I'm taking care of me. But in that self, there is no God. The doctrines of God are doctrines of selflessness. The promises of pleasure and contentment, they elevate our flesh. And we live in a culture teeming with such false promises today. The politicians say, elect me. And I'll give you stuff. I'll make you happy. So much so that they'll even reward irresponsibility at the expense of those who have worked hard and made sacrifices and been successful. Our culture says, pursue sexual gratification without inhibition. And then if the natural result of said gratification is shame, is fear, is sorrow, if the natural result is guilt, well, then you just need to love yourself more. It's the society's fault for making you feel as though you're doing something wrong. It's those Christians who are living a different a different life, who have chosen a different path. They're judging you. It's their fault. And if, God forbid, such sexual pleasure should lead to pregnancy, kill that child so that it will not stand in the way of your goals and your dreams and your pursuits. 
demand that society and culture modify their actions, their lifestyle, and their thinking to cater to your feelings and desires. You should be able to go through life without ever having to feel any guilt or shame or remorse because those are only a product of a society that is judging you, of a society that has a standard that they're demanding that you live by, never once thinking that maybe, just maybe, what has plunged them into guilt or shame or fear or discontent or anxiety or depression or any of those things might be the very sins that they have been told that they can pursue without hindrance. Might be the very hedonism that is the core of their philosophy. That maybe, just maybe, Satan lied when he said, you shall not surely die. But instead, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. So the world says, reject it all. Reject morality, reject tradition, reject duty, reject obligation, reject the order of nature itself so that you can be happy. And they say, I'm not happy. It must be because some people don't accept my rejection of order when in fact it is the rejection of order itself that is making them unhappy. And our society is not the first to live in such philosophies. As a matter of fact, this is as old as Adam and Eve. But every generation must contend with them because these allures are baked into the human heart. Contexts change, Christian, but Satan's philosophy does not. In every age, he's giving the same false promises. He's, te- he's telling the same lies. He's appealing to the same elements of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to compel you to step outside of the reality of God's design and into self-gratification, into hedonism, into narcissism into the God of self. And he calls us to enfold into the God of self. And then when the God of self does not make you happy and you find yourself all the more miserable and all the more afraid and all the more confused and all the more anxious, Satan says, it's because of those truth tellers. It's because truth still exists. And you've got to tear it down all the more so that you don't have to look at it anymore. You've got to tear down male and, wo- uh, male and, f- and female. You've got to tear them down so that you don't have to think about it anymore. You've got to tear down morality so that you don't have to think about it anymore. You've got to tear down truth tellers so that they aren't in front of you because that's the thing. But every single generation and every time a person has tried to run, they cannot run far enough because the problem is not with the truth. The problem is with their choices. And Christian, this is why we have the wisdom of the word of God. The temptations that we face in this generation aren't new. They aren't unique. They aren't exclusive. Man has been confronted with them from the beginning. It's the same philosophy in a different context. They might wrap it around the science nowadays. They might wrap it around studies show. They might wrap it around independent fact checkers assure us. They might wrap it around whatever they want to wrap it around. But truth is truth and error is error. And the lies have been here since the beginning. And it's the same lie over and over and over again, just wrapped in new wrapping paper. Through this context, we have the wisdom. Through the word of God, we are given the wisdom to reject the lies and embrace the truth of God. And we must. Which is why we count this book as more necessary than food. It's why man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And of course, the reason why all this matters is because of this final point. Choices have consequences. 
I've not really gotten on the choices have consequences kick for a little while now. There was a time where it was coming up quite often. But you cannot cheat the system, Christian. Eve was tricked into thinking that she could do things her way without incurring the promised consequences of the living God. She tried. It failed. Adam rebelled, almost seeming to dare God to levy against him the death that he promised. And Adam lost the dare. They stepped into the promises of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, expecting all of the good things that their deceitful heart imagined would come to pass, that their heart lied to them, saying that they could have if only they compromised, if only they did things their way, if only they pursued the God of self, if only they recognized this hedonism to be the superior philosophy, and they stepped into that, and they became shameful and afraid. That's what they found. So they clothed their nakedness and they hid themselves from the face of the Lord. Because choices have consequences, Christian. Life is a series of choices. And we walk through life going from one choice to the next choice. And each choice produces a subsequent result. And, so, and good choices, biblically good choices, will produce biblically good results. Biblically wrong choices, wicked choices produce biblically wicked results. And we may not always see those results. I may make a good biblical choice and the result for it is I lose my job. Well, that doesn't sound very good. Well, that's because we're not talking about karma. We're talking about sowing and reaping. If we, were, if we lived in a karma, a karmaic world, then yeah, I make a good moral choice and the world rewards me for it. But that's not what Jesus said would happen. Jesus would say, marvel not if the world hates you. You know that if they hated me, they hate, if they hate me, they hated, if they hate you, they hated me first. There we go. We don't live in a karmaic world. We live in a sowing and reaping world. And in a sowing and reaping world, when I sow to the spirit, I reap the spirit. When I sow to the flesh, I reap the flesh. And my sowing to the Spirit might very well mean that I lose my job, but it will also mean joy more abundantly. And that's the promise we've been given. You may not always see those results. Like Elijah on Carmel, who did what the Lord called him to do. And next thing you know, he's fleeing from Jezebel and he's discouraged and he's confused because he didn't see the results he expected to, re to see, but those choices had consequences and God was in control of that because those consequences are there. Maybe we aren't always the best at tracing cause and effect so that we make a choice and then we don't really realize that the effect that we're experiencing is because of that choice. Maybe you're not very good at recognizing that the lie that you told yesterday has actually fundamentally inhibited your spirit today so that you have become grumpy, you have become irritable, you've become confused, you've become anxious, you've become uh, despondent, you've become distant, and you say, I don't know where this came from. And you had forgotten that yesterday you sowed into your spirit the flesh and now you're reaping the flesh. And maybe you don't see it. Maybe you haven't identified it. Maybe you haven't been very good at tracing cause and effect. But know this. It happens. It happens every time. And it happens whether you like it or not. And you can't do a thing about it. Because choices have consequences. You cannot cheat the system. 
No man ever has, no man ever will. No one gets away with anything. Choices have consequences. And the point of this exhortation is not to scare you into not making choices. Okay, pastor, you've sealed the deal. No choices for me anymore. I'm just going to go through life and say, nope, 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 no choices. No, because not making a choice is a choice too, isn't it? And this is also not meant to hold judgment over your heads and to make you feel guilty or whatever the case may be. Jesus has borne your sin on the cross. He's taken your guilt. You don't have to feel that if you're a believer. This is to compel you unto wisdom. Wisdom calls you and I to learn these truths. And and wisdom compels us to learn these truths the easy way. To trust the teachings of God's word, to assimilate them into our lives. Say, yeah, but that's not what I feel like I'm seeing in the world around me. Trust God's word. Learn these truths the easy way. Acknowledge God's word. Acknowledge its alignment with history as you know it. Recognize that no one cheats God's system. Adam and Eve couldn't do it. Satan can't do it. You can't either. Pursue wisdom with all of your heart, Christian. The way that God has ordained isn't a desirable way to live in the flesh. If Satan's philosophy is rooted in self, then God's philosophy is rooted in selflessness. That doesn't sound fun to a selfish heart. Doing things God's way doesn't sound advantageous to a selfish heart. Yes, but if I do it God's way, I'm going to be at a disadvantage in this area, in that area, in this, in, in, in this opportunity, in that opportunity. Understandable that your, your, your sinful flesh would think that way. But what God's way might lack in excitement or glamour, what God's may, way might lack in fleshly appeal, it more than makes up for in spiritual fruit. It's worth it. And it's a lesson that is indeed as old as Adam. So let us today commit ourselves, recommit ourselves to that lesson. Choices have consequences. Adam and Eve made choices. And by the way, Adam's choice did not just affect him, did it? You and I are living under that today. You and I are still feeling the effects of the choice that Adam made in the garden that day. And your choices, quite possibly, quite likely, don't just affect you either, do they? So may we be determined to live life making choices that align with God's word, with the wisdom of God as he has presented it, with the world as God has designed it. Learning the same lesson that Adam and Eve had to learn on that day. They had to learn it the hard way, but the word of God gives us a record so that we don't have to. Choices have consequences. Follow God's wisdom, make those choices, and allow God to have the result. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.